Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Jyoti Mishra. Dr. Mishra has expertise in the computational, cognitive, and translational neurosciences. She is the founder of the Neural Engineering and Translation Labs at UC San Diego. Neat Labs innovates neurotechnologies for scalable brain health mapping, monitoring, and precision therapeutics at the intersection of neuroscience and digital tech. Neat Labs R&D is informing personalized mental health care, education, as well as climate change adaptation. Today, we talk about the exciting work that is being done at Neat Labs. Welcome, Dr. Mishra. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So I wanted to talk to you for a long time about the work that you do at UC San Diego, mainly at basically you are the founder of your lab. It's called the Neat Labs. And I'm curious what the work is that you do there and kind of how it all began. Well, thank you for asking that question. Neat Labs has been a dream in the making for quite some time. I trained in the neurosciences, so more like the basic neurosciences of how how the brain works and how does it you know, code for how we pay attention, how do we go about our cognitive lives on a day-to-day basis. And I was doing a lot of this work in healthy individuals. And so when I graduated, finished my PhD, that is, I, I went on to wanting to apply that knowledge towards helping people who may have problems with cognitive functioning. And then I did some work in that space as well, but I still felt that the way mental health is practiced today in the clinics is just, there's a a huge gap between how we understand all these complex processes in the lab versus what happens in the clinic. So there needs to be sort of more energy put into how we translate what happens in the lab to what happens in the clinic and how is that bridge possible? And the kinds of question one would think that are sort of different than very high end neuroscience. You know, when you, when I want to say, okay, I actually want to understand how, when a person comes into the clinic or just goes to their therapist or a counselor, how is their brain working? Can we co- quantify their cognition as to how they're, you know, how they're processing emotions, how they feel, you know, they respond to rewards, how they're paying attention, all of these different things. And if you think about quantifying that, if you were to take, you know, like a, a neuroscientist in the lab, they would take a whole week and put a person through a, like a, a million dollar scanner and, and whatnot, it'll take forever to do this. Right. And, and here you are, we need you coming in, you don't have enough time. You maybe have a 30 minute appointment. You'll give me a 30 minute appointment. So I want to create an affordable tool kit to measure all these things fast, still measure them reliably and be able to measure them with equipment that's very affordable that it's not just in you know my lab and a clinic that I work with because I'm friends with the clinic person but anybody who wants it who who would see the utility of such data could have it and so knee labs you know it has like it's an acronym for neural engineering and translation 
And what that means really is that we're engineering neuroscience-based tools for the purposes of translating them to the clinic. And so the questions we think about are really about real-world application and feasibility to assess how these tools can help people get more insights about their mental health, not just in terms of what might be problematic or not, but can this also help us to design new treatments? And that's the work that excites us to really be at this sort of bridge between the work that's happening cutting edge in, in, in the lab and also working very much in collaboration with clinics and integrating our work within the clinic settings on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, so that's how Meat Labs came about. What are the tools? So what, when you think about kind of the tools that you're wanting to kind of implement and use, what, what are some? Yeah, so, uh, so we use a lot of different kinds of tools, but because they have to be eventually deployed in, in the real world, in, in real clinics and in people's homes, we want to think about technology that that is affordable and scalable. And so this can be, you know, apps that we design that, that go on to regular phones. These can be sort of smart watches that can help us quantify many aspects of how the body is doing. You know, like any smartwatch can tell you when you sleep, when you are active physically, how stressed you might be or from your heart rate and heart rate variability measures. So these are things related to the body. Um, Now there's also more affordable hardware to do brain recording. So for a very long time, EEG, so electroencephalography has been around. It's been around since the 1930s, but ways to analyze that kind of data, how do we uh, measure EEG in sort of real world settings that can be much noisier than the lab environment. So we've been using that and refining sort of the analytics for that quite a lot. So EEG is sort of our bread and butter. And then there's there are also other affordable tools that are coming out, such as uh, what's called ECMIRS. It's used instead of electrical recordings that happens with EEG. Now there's infrared-based recordings also possible. But yeah, it, those are kind of the more affordable tools. Of course, anything that's magnetically oriented, like, you know, magnetic resonance imaging that's like, a million dollar machine. So an MRI in a backpack is still a little bit further away, but you know, when it does become affordable, why not? We're a little bit agnostic to the exact hardware that we use. We just try to refine it to be more user-friendly that gives high signal to noise quality and so on. And that, that any clinic that wants to can afford it. As you're talking about this as a psychiatrist, how, in what ways can you imagine the work you do in your lab then moving into the clinical realm? And I, it sounds like you already are, have like moved into the clinical realm, but what are some of kind of some ideas of case prototypes in terms of how this could work? You know, that's a really interesting question. You know, more recently, I work in a university setting. And uh, when I actually think about commonly what any anyone who's gonna who we see might come in they will you know 30 to 40 percent of people that we see you know every third person will have have a threshold that passes clinical guidelines for depression or anxiety and so we see that a lot and it's been very interesting in that there are you know things that you would think 
intuitively, actually. So when you think about depression, you think about, okay, there's rumination and worrying and the ability to focus on a process can actually get a little bit distorted as you get into, you know, thinking about things that are that are beyond that initial focus element you're you're thinking about you know anything that might worry you and how other other people may be evaluating you or whatever is going on but sort of a this negative spiral that happens and it turns out that we can quantify those kinds of processes as to how the brain is responding when we ask you in very, you know, measured tests is like, okay, well now pay attention to this thing. Or actually, you know, it turns out that when we have these internal depression or anxiety like feelings, we're still very good at paying attention to things on the screen. And if I tell you, okay, tap the red object, but not the green object, something like that, we will do just fine. But if I would say something like, okay, now let's pay attention to my breath. So um, let me look internally, not look externally, but internally. Then suddenly um, we see a person's brain processes go all over the place. And in that from a moment to moment consistent basis, we see that a person who's feeling anxious or depressed about their thoughts has trouble keeping on to the salient signal of just, you know, just being able to breathe consistently. It's a very simple test. It's not something that's too complicated, but from that, we find what brain areas can get dysregulated or aberrantly processing information. And then, and then we say, okay, well, if this is happening, what toolkit do we have to bring it back online? And it really, you know, for us, that's very exciting because we think about that as most things in neuroscience are correlated in that, okay, well, people feel this way and then the brain does this. And so potentially this is, this is an underlying correlate. The brain's, you know, doing this and it's, it's, it's not performing well enough. And therefore the person might be feeling this way, but it's correlative. It's not causative. That's how most studies are done. But now we say, okay, well, how about we have tools that we can actually change that brain activity? It may be through many different ways. There's behaviorally, you can change things. You can change things. You can stimulate or zap a part of the brain with electrical or magnetic pulses. And you can basically make that part of the brain be more active. And what does the behavior change? Does the person feel different now? Then you get to a more causal relationship because you're getting to if I were to address this particular biological issue would the person start feeling better and that's where most scientists want to be at also people don't just want to say you know okay well this correlates with that but this is really the underlying basis is when we do causal work and so Understanding this in clinics, in healthy people, and sort of like this, it's sort of a continuum between feeling healthy and well to being feeling not so well and depressed. And each of us goes through this on, you know, in the cycle of a year, there, there are moments and days and weeks when one of us may be feeling one way or another. So we don't really think about, okay, crossing a threshold. We really think about going through these waves of you know how we feel and then being able to quantify that and then taking that sort of 
brain activity as the substrate that we're going to work on. And if it changes, is it causally changing behavior? So for scientists, that's super exciting. And then obviously, it also gives sort of the, the person or the, the coach or the therapist also has a monitoring tool to say, okay, well, there's a quantitative measure for change to track. Like, okay, is, is this changing? And, and if this underlying process changes, then the behavior is also changed. So almost like saying, okay, well, you know, for any other bodily problem, like in diabetes, okay, well, now my glucose is not spiking And so my diabetes is under control. So similarly, now my brain activity is back online. And so my depression is under control. So we don't have that quantitative measurement and why not have it, you know? And I think that's how science can inform the work that therapists also do and psychiatrists and psychologists also do is really provide these insightful measures rather than you know, well, this person didn't do as well with this particular medication, let's switch to something else. So just being able to make more informed, insightful decisions. It kind of makes me think of this idea that when I do prescribe medication to people, they're like, well, how do I know it's going to work? Or, you know, is there a blood test that I can take to make sure that this is going to work for me? Or when I'm on the meds, is there a blood test to know that it's at the right level, that it's really helping And for most of the medications we use, that's not possible because there isn't necessarily, it's hard to really make individual decisions based on on that. So are you saying, so basically there's this idea, so you have someone who's depressed, right? And what you really are trying to do is to try to create a way to get data in terms of saying, okay, this is what's going on in your brain, in your depressed brain. And as you move towards recovery, we see these positive changes, not only in your behavior, but in the data that we're collecting. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, other people are trying to do this too, in that even in like the industry or the startup space or that people want to have, there's this, you know, this great need for having a reference standard for a biological reference standard for the brain, just like we have for the ECG or like, you know, the the electrocardiogram for the heart or like, you know, a blood test, a glucose test, an insulin test. We want to have that for the brain too. At the same time, while that's a great goal to have, and I think we do need that and, and that's some of where our work is, the brain's actually not just complicated, but also a very, you know, malleable system. So you can think that, you know, there are people because of say some brain injury may in some part of their early life may have just half a brain, you know, they have half a a cortex available to them. But when you're talking to a person who may have such an injury, you will never realize that that is the case or that something is missing because the rest of their brain has undergone plasticity or change to a level that it is able to perform all daily functions with maximum possible efficiency. And so at the same time as we need a reference standard and reference standards can help. It's just one organ that does not follow much of a reference standard, given that it has this capacity to change based on the inputs that come into it. So the experiences that we give our brain on a day-to-day basis throughout our life, and the more we challenge it, the more we make it practice different things, 
those parts of the brain change and that never stops it you know it's not just in children or you know in adults or you, you age and even as you know an 80 year old you could pick up a new language so the brain's constantly changing so there will be some standards and we would be able to say whether you know there is dysfunction beyond sort of a normal range yes that's possible but at the same time you know the I think these reference standards will only go to a certain in certain ways because of the ability of the brain to change and make new connections all the time. Right. And I think the one thing to clarify that I think might be helpful for the listener to understand a little bit is what are you actually measuring? What are you looking for? What does a depressed brain look like? Yeah. So in the in the actual, you know, if you were to just think about the EEG signal, it is just simply taking a very lar- large population of neurons, which is the brain cells under that part of the brain where those EEG leads are put. Under that, there's a huge population of neurons that are either, you know, firing and producing brain activity, and that brain activity produces a change in currents, and that's exactly what's picked up by the a voltage change that is picked up by the by the EEG sensor. So, you know, we think about electricity; that's exactly what's being communicated. And what happens though is that many times these EEGs can just be measured at rest, which means I won't actually ask you to do anything. You know, say, okay, well, I'm just going to measure your EEG while you're, um, you know, just just sit in the chair. Don't like, I'm not asking you to do any specific tasks. And then people mind wander and think about anything in particular that they want to. That kind of processing does not usually generate much predictive data because you can imagine, you know, I'll sit in a chair, I'll think about my dinner, you'll sit in a chair, think about your kids, who knows, you know, everybody's doing different things, and we never get a reliable signal. So what we have people do is actually we develop sort of an interface, this is very common in cognitive neuroscience, we just made it more user friendly is just a small set of games that people get you know, instructions to, um, like I said, in this case, it's a simple test of, okay, well, now I want you to pay attention to your breath, your breathing, and just close your eyes. And after you take an inhale, and then an exhale, and just tap on the on the keyboard. Um, It's very simple. This is like, it's a one minute test they do. Another test that they'll do um, that's about say, okay, now you'll see, you know, a blue object on the screen and there'll be many other colors of object that might come up and just tap the keyboard when you see the blue object. So these are just examples of the kinds of little games that people will play. But the concept really is that when we put people into specific tasks, we can measure more reliably how everybody's brain is doing because they're trying to hopefully follow the task and do well on the task in their scores, boards, and whatnot. They make it like, hey, I also want to score well, so let me try to do well. And most people try to do that. And, and so while we put people into very specific cognitive states, very simple ones because simple ones are important because we want to be able to do this in a 
in a three-year-old child and in a 90-year-old and in like a functioning 40-year-old just to create these reference standards throughout the lifespan, right? So what a person needs to do is actually very simple. Also because brain information to many complicated things can get very complicated by itself. Like, you know, if I ask you to do something like this conversation and everybody has a conversation, there'll be so much going on in the brain at the same time that I won't be able to understand it reliably across people or interpret it. So the the testing is actually just, like I said, an example of simple tests like that. And then we figure out what's changing in the brain. And then if you think about um, depression specifically, we see that very reliably, there's a part of the brain uh, that's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's this part of the brain that is very much important for executive control. So when we need to you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this goal-directed behavior, which is I have to go do this thing in my work today, or I need to, you know, anything I want to plan to do, how do I execute that behavior? And this part of the brain is very important for that. And we see it under-functioning um, right. in depression. So this idea that over time, the hope is as they improve that, that functions more kind of like a normal brain would or, or a non-depressed brain would. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I know you do a lot of work with mindfulness. I don't know if you could just summarize the work that you do, because I'm so curious to just hear from you, kind of the research you're doing and kind of the exciting new things that you're doing with it. Could you just give us a, a glimpse into that too? Sure. Of course. So so cognitive neuroscience, which is like how we understand cognition on a daily basis, is very much focused on how we interact with the external world. So things that are happening, you know, on the screen and, and, and with other people, but not so much with what's happening in our internal world. You know, just the way we, you know, look at things and we process things outside and we say, okay, I'm going to follow this thing, but I'm also going to ignore other things as distractions. It's also happening in our heads all the time. We're making internal goals about this is my next step. And we also have these internal distractions of, you know, things, thoughts that come into our heads about, you know, that take us away from our internal goals. So we started to measure some of that and a very easy measure of internal monitoring is, is the breath because it's an internal signal. And a lot of our mindfulness interventions are also very simply oriented around breath-based attention that's sort of like the basic level of what mindfulness is in that if one would think about concentrative breath focused um, attention and there is there may obviously many different levels of mindfulness and you know thinking about different parts being aware of different parts of your body thinking about nature sitting meditation walking meditation and all of those things the work that I have done in the past has mostly been around breath-focused meditation, again, partly because of the simplicity of being able to interpret the changes that happen after. If I were to throw in, you know, these very complex, you know, mindfulness meditation regimes, it would be just very hard for me to figure out which one of those is the, the secret ingredient. So let's just start at step one, and which is, you know, this, this basic breath focus. and and a lot of our work has been focused on delivering that in digital formats. So, you know, and making very user-friendly app-based tools. 
that are also one thing that's unique about them is making them adaptive to the user in that we are able to extract some measures about how consistently a person's performing, how well they're performing on a simple, we ask them simple questions as they go along. And, and if they're, and if a person's having difficulty staying on with a breath focused task, we reduce the time for that mindfulness versus we, if they're doing well, we increase the time and give them different instructions and more challenge and instruct. So it's, so it's almost like a game in that you get new instructions only when you pass the first level but you have to do well at the first level to go to the next one. So it's it's slightly different experience than going into um, say you know let let me just sit and meditate in in a class environment. So it's a little bit more guided feedback, but from an app, not from a trainer. And then what we've so so right now in the in we have many studies going on in that space where we are deploying that to look at whether it can, you know, even in very small capsules of literally, you know, two to five minutes a day, can it help healthcare professionals? What if we did that kind of little game with kids who are feeling depressed and and a parent who is trying to help the child. So what if we had sort of this parent-child co-sessions, but in this digital format? So we've been trying to see whether A, that's helpful. And if it is, what exactly happened to the brain when that was helpful? If we felt that this prefrontal part of the brain is important, did it get more active or not? Did certain connections in that part of the brain become more strong or not so that's the basic work that's that's happening but then we also think about combining these you could train mindfulness on your own but there's also a case for saying okay can it be combined with other things that would make it more sustainable such as you know changes in in your lifestyle or changes in how you might change that part of the brain activity so so the second part is actually a, a, an exciting clinical trial that we're running right now where we say, okay, well, we know that TMS, so transcranial magnetic stimulation, is done on this part of the brain, DLPFC, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, is a standard target for depression for TMS treatment. What if we if, if we know that this sort of mindful state also activates DLPFC, this prefrontal part of the brain, what if we combine the TMS session with this mindfulness training? Would that create more gains and more people would experience remission or not? And that's essentially what we're embedding our app into a clinic that does TMS and looking in the clinical trial, if that's the case, whether that performs better than standard TMS or not. And then the last thing is just seeing whether this kind of meditation tools is, does it work in isolation or or, or we really have to think about more holistically about the person, you know, about their lifestyle and changes around that as well. And yeah, some of the work is about that. Fascinating. Well, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, you had mentioned that you have a paper coming out in a few days, which by the time this airs, this will be, you know, will be a few months out, but you want to tell us a little bit about that kind of most up-to-date paper that's coming out? Sure, of course. I think that's some of our most exciting work right now. 
So let me backtrack from, you know, we've been talking about the brain, but we're, we're not like this brain cut off from the rest of our body systems where you're in these really fully living beings. And like in that, if I were to ask you to do a little task for 10 minutes, it might depend on how you slept last night or how active you've been today, how much coffee you've had. And um, if you've had like, you know, pancakes for breakfast and are feeling tired after that, or you're, you know, just had, you know, whatever you ate in the morning. So just to say that many different aspects of our health are important for, you know, how our brain functions and how we feel. So just a narrow view of brain activity is literally a very narrow view in that, well, you know, that brain activity may simply be that way because you haven't been getting enough sleep. So we've been thinking about how do we put all of this together and how would we address the needs of every single person who may be seeking a new treatment to their depressed state in a more holistic way, but yet still a quantitative way. So what this paper is about is developing a data science-based method to evaluate many different aspects of a person's functioning. So people in this study, they took, um, they were all depressed individuals. They took a little app of ours that they, you know, reported how depressed they were feeling on just like a one to seven scale. They did this four times a day, just ping them. Okay. How depressed am I feeling? And then a few times in the day, they would also tell us about what they ate right before. It was just a check mark kind of items, the items we knew that they were, that are sensitive to when people are depressed, people can be sensitive to a certain kind of diet. And then they were wearing smart watches with which we knew how much activity they were getting, how much sleep they were getting. They're also telling us about, um, the watches were telling us about how stressed they were. Once in a while, we'll have them do sort of a, a 30 second test of how they were breathing. So just the way a little bit in the segment, we were talking about how we look at very basic breath focus mindfulness. And in that, you know, we can do that simple test. Okay, close your eyes and take a breath and just tap on your on your app and do this for 30 seconds. And people did this for about two to three weeks. Um, we also had brain data from them that we collected the first time they came in and then in the middle of the study. And then at the end of the study, they didn't take all the brain equipment home because it'd be a little bit more complicated. And then we said, okay, let's try to use, you know, the best data analytical tools that are in the machine learning and artificial intelligence space to figure out what predicts any individual's depression over this period of time. And there's a lot of excitement about machine learning and AI used in healthcare. But one of the biggest critiques about that is also that AI tends to compare. You're always building a model that compares one person to an existing data set. So your prediction is only as good as your prior data. So you're saying, okay, I belong to cluster A of people versus cluster B of people. So here we actually took a very different approach. We said, well, there's no pre-collected data out there that's done what we've done. So we're actually going to treat each person as unique. And so these are what are called N of one models. It's the model itself is fully personalized in that it just takes your data 
And what it's trying to do is say my feeling of how, how depressed or how happy I am is fluctuating up or down over this two or three weeks period. And what underlying that is what kind of diet or, or uh, exercise or sleep or brain function is predicting that. And so for each person, we can figure out what is their predictive factor, what is their most sensitive Thing. And for me, it might be that, you know, when I get four hours of sleep versus when I get eight hours of sleep, actually, people don't have that much variation. Sometimes people do, but it's between say, six to eight hours that people are sleeping like that. Or, or maybe sometimes in depression, people sleep even longer. Sleep may be a factor, but for another person, it's how, how much, you know, outside activity they're, they're getting. And for another person, it may be how much stress they're feeling, which we can measure from this little chunks of mindful breathing that we ask them to do and so on. And in the study, you know, measured all these different factors. And the point of the work was that, okay, now we get this set of uh, sort of features about that person that are across these holistic domains predicting their depression and now as a therapist, a psychiatrist or a counselor, I can say, okay, why don't we focus on the top or the top two predictors? And we're going to change those. And we're going to try to see if that will affect how you feel. And how you change those, we can, we can talk through how we change those. But the goals will be very concrete. The data itself will say, you know, say for example, sleep. When you were sleeping eight hours, I'm mean, just pretend data, but um, when you were sleeping eight hours, you were feeling significantly better than when you were sleeping seven hours. So let's try for eight hours. And the, your bedtime seems like your bedtime was when it was 10 p.m. versus 11 p.m. It was better. So let's try for this 10 p.m. and eight hours. Right. And the therapist in there is, is there to help how are we going to make this happen? But the, the point is the data is telling us, providing us these insights about what that person needs. And then beyond that, it brings in sort of this human helper to help you guide you through the process, but tell you not just, you know, generic goals, like let's sleep better and, and exercise more and meditate more. It's like, this is the exact tool you use and this much time is important or this much activity is important. It looks like when you get out 20 minutes, we've seen in people, it doesn't have to be very strenuous physical activity. You can be doing for you, it seems like when you're doing 20 minutes of activity, even mild to moderate activity, but you're getting out, but you're consistently getting out every evening, you're doing much better than if you're doing a highly strenuous workout. So Things like this will come out from the data. And so the insights you can provide as a therapist will become more concrete. And over time, imagining that you as a therapist have access to this wellness dashboard and to say, okay, yes, is this person able to achieve this? Why or why not? So your discussions become 
more, you know, quantified rather than, okay, let me see how I might help you. That's a little bit more guesswork. Right. So it's kind of this data-driven intervention. And exactly. it makes me think, I mean, these are simple things and probably more an appropriate amount of sleep is better than too much sleep or too, li- or too little sleep. Right. Right. Um, but I think what we come across in clinical life is that we all have this idea is kind of how to create this idea of this behavioral plan, but people don't always follow it for a lot of different reasons. But if there's data behind it, I could see there might be, there might be more of a drive to kind of make sure that they do comply with those recommendations because there's data to back it. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, we're all motivated to like, I can move to this quantified target. You tell me, make me feel better. You know, how do I quantify that? It's like my happiness itself is not so well quantified. I was like, okay, well, don't think about your happiness. Let's just try to do this, you know, goal of this much activity or this kind of diet or this particular sleep. So you move away and you suddenly feel like if that is the underlying cause, it is going to create a sustainable change. And of course, you know, there's meds and other things that you could put in all of this, you know, as part of it as well. But I think the data here to us feels like it provides insight and sort of an empowerment to what you want to see in, you know, in people's lives, the change that they want to see that you feel like I can move this, you know, it's like, well, I, can I move my happiness? That's much harder. <laughs> right. Well, I think of it, another thing that comes to mind is like it's supercharged behavioral intervention, basically, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, we've been talking for so long and I feel like we probably need to wrap up, but um, I'm going to make sure that the listener has your information about Meat Labs and the work that you do at UCSD if they're wanting to learn a little bit more about the work and kind of the exciting new new research that is being done and coming out. And by the time this podcast comes out, it will be out. But um, I guess before we close, anything you want to, kind of any last words, any kind of big picture kind of statement you want to make? Yeah, I'd say the, the brain, you know, is does best when we're challenging it. So find the fun in, you know, new challenges. And and to me, that's always been the secret to new to happiness and yeah, that's what I, I'd leave with. And I think, you know, making me laugh was, was part of that and, and going on sort of this challenging yet exciting journey of bringing science tools to uh, help people's mental health is something very uh, gratifying for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on and I appreciate the work you're doing. It's so exciting to see where it's going to lead. Thank you. It was really nice chatting with you, Josephine. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.